0: When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today we're speaking with Joshua Banbury, a classically trained jazz singer and opera librettist from Austin who is one of the few black openly gay men in the space. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So can you introduce yourself to our listeners with who you are and what you do?
1: Yes, uh, my name is Joshua Banbury and I am a jazz and classical vocalist and an opera librettist.
0: Are you an Austin native?
1: I am um technically born uh, and raised in San Marcos um but I spent the majority of my childhood kind of in Hayes County and I um went to high school in uh, in Austin. Uh I think I started performing in uh it was kindergarten. Um and I started writing plays uh by the end of uh elementary school. I was raised in the church as well. Um I went to elementary school in Lockhart and um at Carver uh but yeah, I was raised in the church, and my mother was a preacher, so I was very used to like getting up and, and um, yeah, and being of service to the church and, and, and being in music in that way. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until around middle school that I really knew that I wanted to be on stage. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually been all of my life. That I'm thinking about it that I wanted to do this.
0: So can you tell me about how you got into the specific type of singing that you do?
1: Well, I, yeah, like I said, I started off doing theater and I was really fortunate my freshman year at Lehman High School, I was um, interested in singing just because I felt like that would be an interesting tool to add to my actor's toolbox. And I had a a choral director that um, put me in competitions. I signed up for choir and he put me in competitions. He heard something in my voice and um, I started taking voice lessons, and I started winning competitions. And I realized that it was a uh, a much quicker way to get on stage. And I also learned that singing, for me, felt like an elevated um, version of acting. Um, it, there was the text that I would learn, the monologues, but then I was introduced to arias, which seemed to be like an elevated uh, experience for me. So I fell in love with that. Um, I have complicated feelings behind it because... Um, Austin's arts education is great, but it's not as varied as it would be, like, per se, on the East Coast or even in Houston. So the only outlet that I had coming up as a young vocalist in Austin educationally in public school systems, for the most part, was classical voice. Um, other other cities have, like, um, performing arts schools with uh, vocal jazz and uh, opera and Uh, even uh, like contemporary, I think I was the first student to study at the performing arts schools, uh, classical student to study at the performing arts uh, high school in Austin. So just to give you kind of like a, uh, yeah, a feel of like what the classical community is like here, it's uh, a little, it's kind of, I wouldn't say small, but it was like I said, one of the only opportunities I had for singing here. So I started off with classical voice. um, And when I went away to college on the East Coast, I made a transition to doing jazz around 2017. But um, yeah, classical voice and opera was was my goal before I left. And um, we can talk about it more later. But yeah, the shift was really important in major, but I got that foundation here. um, And I don't think I would have been able to pursue a a career in classical singing if I wouldn't have been admitted to the Austin School for Performing and Visual Arts. Um, They gave me a full scholarship to study voice uh, my last uh, year in high school, and I just had voice lessons every day um, and coachings every day, which is fairly unusual for young classical singers and honestly very expensive. So I got really lucky in that regard. And yeah, that's that's kind of the genesis of, of how all this got started.
0: Austin is known as such a big arts town, so was it unexpected that there was really only kind of one avenue in terms of the education that you wanted to pursue like the type of singing and performing art you wanted to do
1: gosh I mean looking back on it I understand there's it's it's complicated i at the time i i at the time because I hadn't lived anywhere other than Austin, it, it was just I just took it as like what it was I, I wasn't un, unaware of yeah, of the agency that I could have uh, over my own voice and, uh, yeah, and, until I left for college. Um, but, yeah, that's a great question. I think it has to do with a few things, but I think it mostly has to do with whoever is in charge of, like, programming material for young singers here in the country, I mean, here in the state.
0: But it's still provided, it seems like you said, a good foundation for you. Can you talk also about the kind of community that you found here within that space even though it was maybe small
1: yeah um it was a great community i like i said i got really lucky because my parents were first of all extremely supportive i came i came from a a church community that was very loving and supportive yeah like i said i had that that uh, teacher at my public school who saw something in me and committed to giving me complimentary lessons um i was in a group called you better sing um, that uh, goes that uh, offers free like music education to kids here in Austin and uh, we would go around and do concerts um, and that was great for just getting me on the stage. And then at ASPVA, um, I had a wonderful group of uh, teachers that were just pouring into me every day from um, uh, I was learning Shakespeare. I had a, a, a German addiction coach. Um, I just had so many different, uh, teachers that, that came in to Austin to to pour into me, and I think that's how I was able to um, to yeah to to go and sing other places because I had that that concentration. Um, yeah, it's, it was very highly con- because I think at the time when I was applying for opera competitions, it's like 2013. I do not recall there being too many other young classical singers trying to um, work um, you know elsewhere in the country and do competitions and whatnot so i think i was one of the only ones at the time so yeah i just got i lucky a lot of the love was just poured directly into me
0: you mentioned that some of the love and support came from your church community that you grew up in mm-hmm. did your church and religious upbringing inform your singing or performances at all because i think when a lot of people think of churches they think of like worship songs and things like that so did that have any influence on you
1: yeah, it's, it's particularly the kind of singing that, that I'm doing, like just just acoustic with piano and voice. I, I learned that even when I was at ASPV, I think one of the first concerts I did at that school, a woman came to me after I sang and said that like I looked like and sounded like her son that had died the year before in a car accident. And I, I just realized then that like singing is a kind of ministry. And if a person is in a certain place... Um, your song can really can really touch them and change them and move them so it's yeah like i said my i grew up watching my mom be a preacher and oftentimes i do feel a close similarity between being a singer and a preacher it's the i think the the goal ultimately is to minister or to or to have a certain message to someone to convey um so uh yeah i think it's it's funny a lot of jazz singers Um, And a a lot of opera singers, but a lot of jazz singers are pastor's kids. Um, uh, Samara Joy, um, I was lucky enough to um, record with her two years ago. um, And I learned that she comes from the church. Her mother and father are are preachers as well. So it's it's an interesting thing to know. I think a lot of those kids that come out of the church wind up being, um, yeah, music ministers in some sort of genre.
0: Yeah. That's a really beautiful comparison between singing and ministry. I really like that. And then for college, is when you went to the coast, the, what did you say, the East Coast? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Can um, you tell me about that experience?
1: It's well, crazy um, and beautiful. Uh, I, I transferred school undergrad uh, many times, two to three times. Um, and I started off at Morgan State University. It was such a divine place for me. And I know that I was supposed to have been there um, because I, I had – being a, a black classical singer, like I said, I – one, didn't come across many other classical singers, period, in Austin. And then I definitely never came across a classical singer that looked like me. Um, and that's still a rarity wherever you go in the United States, but at Morgan State, because it was a historically black college, they have – the re- out of all of 106 of them, they have the highest reputation for – uh, vocal uh, singers with I guess vocal prowess and um, they've won Grammys their choir like travels the the world every summer um, but it was so special my first day of being in the program I was a part of the choir for my scholarship there's over a hundred students that are all from the diaspora that are classical singers and it like changed my life and that's when I learned that you know skin color does not affect your timbre like if someone can look like something and their their sound can be completely informed just by where they grew up not by what they look like and that was such a beautiful thing for me to 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 take in and and so i started adopt adopting a lot of other approaches to singing and next thing you know i was sitting next to a uh a, a classical singer that grew up in detroit so her runs were like this and so-and-so's runs were like this from D.C., and I was picking that up, and it was just such a beautiful melting pot for me um, vocally, and it also was, it kind of broke a lot of the chains that I felt like I had so many teachers that had come from the European tradition of singing that were like, ah, 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 no, it's like this, and I really do appreciate because that's the foundation I sing sing upon today, but it became a little bit, concerning for me as I had moved forward with my career in terms of, well, what is my voice? I understand what healthy singing is like, but considering my ancestral lineage, considering where I grew up, considering I'm Texan, you know, I have these voice teachers that are British that are coming, you know, like telling me how to sing, you know, but I'm like, girl, I'm from Hayes County. So what does that look like for me? Um, So I think that helped a lot just in terms of me connecting with so many different approaches to what it means to be a classical singer. And then, um, at the end of my, my tenure there, I, I escaped to New York, um, to see Cecile McLaurin Savant, who is <laughs> a woman that changed my life. But I think every, a lot of people's lives, but she's regarded as one of the most, uh, respected, um, jazz vocalists on the planet uh, today and has been for, I think the past 10 years. And, um, I got on a bus, uh, a boat bus from Baltimore to New York one night to go see her sing after hearing hearing her on the radio because she was the first singer I ever heard that seemed to seamlessly connect the principles of jazz singing and classical just so seamlessly. A lot you'll working in opera, you'll come across a lot of opera singers that attempted jazz and it's like really big and like right in the mic. Um but something about her singing was so nuanced. It was almost like taking a Baroque singer and putting her with a jazz trio. And I knew that I had to get next to her or just see her and, 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 and try to understand. And I did. And it changed my life forever. Um, seeing her play that night helped me to understand that really a jazz vocalist is just a soloist um, with a very small uh, orchestra. So for the trio is really just a small orchestra that you get to travel with across the country, and you can choose your own repertoire. You're not, you're not held down by, like, this isn't your folk or this is too high, or it's too low for you, or your character wouldn't sing this, or a man sings this, or, oh, this character's white or black, so you can't... Watching her, she just picked music from all over the, the American songbook, opera, blues, jazz, minstrelsy, all of it and it was all there in the jazz club and for me that was that was when I decided that that is what I need to be doing with my uh with with a gift that I have um if I wanted to do it with any kind of integrity and any sort of um uh yeah and with any sort of like acknowledgement of where I come from uh jazz began to make a lot of sense for me so Today, I kind of regard myself as a still a classical singer, but under with the understanding that jazz is American classical music, so I've been calling myself like an American classical singer and it raises some eyebrows, but I think there's a new wave that's coming um where Americans are acknowledging jazz as our own classical music, so it's been about a hundred and a hundred plus years for a lot of the songs that we love so It's I think for the first time as a country, we're kind of taking a a step back like, okay well, this is history now. This is this is what we did. So how do we, you know, we spend so much time focused on French art song and German leader in undergrad when you're studying voice. But I think I see in the next 10 to 15 years that it's going to be a shift from, okay well, maybe instead of learning, focusing on this German leader, which is gorgeous, what about looking at, you know, some blues songs from the, from the Delta um, instead or in addition to as a part of your curriculum. So, yeah, that's that's the kind of way that I'm trying to be on and,
0: and ride for now. Jazz and blues both have connections to the African-American community, black history. Is that something that you really connect to and want to portray in your performances?
1: Oh, for sure. I don't, I don't even know if, Like intentionally, but I I definitely do want to – I want to pay – it's very important for me to pay respects. Um, I think that's what a lot of jazz is about. Um, I mean the the elders won't even let you get on the stand if you're not acknowledging the ones who have come before you, Um, you the good ones at least. Um, But, yeah, for me that's very, very important um, to bring that lineage in and whether or not it's me doing um, arrangements – of old pieces or just talking about them in between my sets. Um, I find that if you were to go to see a lot of younger jazz singers, they'll barely even say the name of the composer that wrote the song beforehand. Or, you know, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll barely mention the singer that made it famous, their name, but like, not so I, I try to take time to talk about the singers first, first and last name, where they're from, where they grew up, where they were, you know, and during this time when they when the song came out, what the country was going through, just little things like that, just with the understanding that if I'm singing Billy Strayhorn's music, I'm in, in, a, in essence invoking his spirit, um, and sitting with the music for long enough, so near to it, whether you're at the piano, whether it's in your headphones for three months on repeat, whatever no matter what genre you're working with you are, are invoking something into your life and I, I think yeah I have that I try to take it with that level of seriousness and that like these are real people that lived <laughs> they're not just historical figures these are real people who made real art and we're really um, summoning them to be with us when we, when we bring when we, when we play their work so I think it's really that, that for me
0: on that same topic, and you kind of touched on it earlier, but what is it like for you to be a black man in a space that is white dominated, and even just a man in that space? Because I think when a lot of people think opera, they think women singing the you know the super high, crazy mm-hmm. glass shattering notes.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's been I don't know a lot of you, Hannah. It's been <laughs> it's been <laughs> it's been uh, ch- uh, difficult. I wouldn't say difficult, but it's been it's been a journey it's because both both industries have their uh challenges and that you you're totally right with opera i that is why i mean i didn't m- mention this so much but another reason why i really turned from opera was because i started doing professional work in college um at a few summer opera festivals um and i saw the work that was available to me at the time as a as a young black baritone In opera, you really are, you're not only cast by, you know, male or female, of course, but you're also, you're mostly cast by your Fock, which is your voice type. And there's only a handful of roles for each voice type. Like the mezzo, soprano, the lower female voice will usually get the witches. The soprano will usually get the, you know, the ingenue and the, the pretty young thing. And the tenors will, but but then when you start breaking it down for the baritones and the black baritones, it's like maybe no more than six or seven roles that have any kind of integrity. Um, some of the roles that I started playing were were characters straight out of um uh, like Jim crow um, just straight minstrelsy. so i uh, that summer two thousand seventeen, I did a production of poor game Best and it was so horrific in that we had an entirely um, the 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 production team um, they were all white, which is totally fine. But the problem came in that when there were scenes for um, the characters to start, uh, they were in church shouting, you know, in the sort of African American Baptist tradition. And the the choreographer was giving a room full of black people from the black tradition notes on how to shout in in rehearsals. So. It was little things like that. And I looked around and not many people seemed to be bothered by it. But I, in that moment, was like, I know that this is not right. I know that it's not right. And it happens far too often in opera because, for the most part, people don't really give a damn about opera generally. So it kind of gets swept under the rug. But I knew that it wasn't right. So I started actually writing my own operas. 2017, I wrote my first opera in 2018. Um, with a, another student from Morgan State, um, and it was fabulous. I was so excited, and I'm still doing that to this day. That's kind of been my remedy for, um, yeah, for for that problem in opera. And it, I was so excited to write new material for my friends and my colleagues who were brilliant at some of the top conservatories all around the world, at studying at Curtis, you know, Juilliard, Royal Academy of Music, but coming to play mammys in the opera, and instead giving them, you know, roles with integrity. And and um, it also just goes beyond, like, even the kind of characters you're playing. It goes into, like, financial stability for for these singers. It goes into, you, yeah, just being able to build, like, career capital. Um, so I joined a, um, uh, a young artist program that teaches um, composers and opera librettists how to write uh, two years ago. And I've kind of been on that journey in addition to singing. Um, and I, I felt that my singing would be most unrestricted in jazz. Um, but there's all of that with opera. But then since working in jazz in the past three years, I've had a great time. I think it is the place that I belong, um, artistically in terms of vocally, but it, there are, they, it comes with its own challenges in that, um, I am like openly gay, Um, and that can be a little contentious on the bandstand or in the jazz scene because it's mostly male-dominated. And to this day, I was just writing about this. um, To this day, it's still rare to see a gay couple, couple in a jazz club, and it's still very rare to see homosexual themes in any jazz song. I don't think anyone can name any jazz song that is about anything gay. To this day, that isn't overtly about anything gay. So, um, that's actually what I was doing in New York last week. Um, Andy Bay is um, the only jazz vocalist in American history to come out as gay and HIV positive. He came out in the seventies. Um, he doesn't perform anymore, but he did. Um, he did this opera, A Rat's Mass, in New York in the seventies, and with Cecil Taylor, who was also one of the only uh, publicly gay jazz musicians. Um, and they created that work together, and I I did um, I did scenes from that opera last week. So uh, that's uh, the on the bright side. I'm looking at how I can pay tribute to those figures that have been working in jazz and have been gay, but have just been overlooked. So that's the other work I'm trying to do, um, and that's why um, I often will do like a straight horn uh, recital tributes. I did one earlier this year at the Phillips Collection with Aaron Deal. Um, I did one last month, a uh, tribute to Strayhorn with Austin Shakespeare, and I'll be doing another tribute to Strayhorn uh, in November at the Kelly Strayhorn Theater.
0: With representation, we talked about, like, you being a black man within the space. So can you talk also about just why it's important for you to be, like, a voice and to show work from other the Those people, those artists that you mentioned that came Mm. out as gay, like as a gay man, like why is it important to you to show that work and to be openly gay and just be um, a source of representation? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. Thank you. Um, That that reminds me of I did a concert at, at Monk's here in Austin this summer, and I was nervous because there were some... (laughs) <laughs> the Phillips collection show that I did was in DC and that was risque. And then I talked about a lot of homosexual themes that left my family completely agog, which was fine. I, I understand, but I was nervous to do the same thing here in Austin. Cause I, I'm closer to home and, you know, it can be a little bit, you know, it's, it can be a little harder to be a little bit more extreme, uh, in, in that regard down here. So I, I briefly talked about it in my show. I forgot what I... I think I said... Um, I think I... Oh, I sang Lush Life. And at the beginning of it, I just talked about my connection with Strayhorn and, and sort of how it's laced with a lot of homosexual themes. Um, and I just talked about that. And someone afterwards was like, oh, you know, you don't really have to say that you're gay. Nobody cares. Like, that's not... You really shouldn't... You should just sing. And I... I totally get what that person was saying, but I know being someone that is queer, that goes to jazz clubs and looks around and feels actively uncomfortable because I don't see anyone else just being themselves in the space. Um, And yeah, I I have a younger sibling who is also um, on the queer, and I, I think about them and Will they, if they walk into a jazz club and wherever in the world, are they gonna feel uncomfortable or probably not? But like, I, yeah, I mean, who knows? But I, I just feel like with me at least talking about it, it, it brings a sort of like comfort and ease to, like, for myself. And I think it puts other people at ease and it brings other people a sense of comfort as well if I'm talking about it. Um, because I think what's worse, and what is unacceptable today is to be getting up there and like kind of like singing a song about some lady that I'm with that I've never, ever been like It's like that on the other end is like, why would you want me to be up there telling y'all fallacies all night? Like, let me just let's just be honest about what my life experience is. And maybe you can find some truth in, in me being honest about my own. Um, and those are the performances that always have stuck with me the most.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that. In your words, no one really cares about opera. Um, So why do you think it's important to keep opera alive? And I guess now jazz. I mean, jazz is still pretty popular, but Mm -hmm. opera specifically, why do you think it's important to keep those traditions alive?
1: Um, Because it's a human tradition. And it's actually a really astonishing feat that somewhere along human history that, like, human beings just figured out how to... Project themselves over sixty to eighty instruments, or maybe that's too many, but over an entire orchestra, maybe sometimes an entire chorus, while walking around in costume, singing—you know—incredible like melismas and everything. It's actually incredible, um, and it, the, it's the fact that we all have the mechanism, and for the most part, most of us with the right training can be trained to do so as well, and the. Not the issue, but where I run into trouble with opera personally is that, well, how does that training – how do you get near that training? It's actually incredibly expensive. Um, You can have the raw talent, but if you don't know how to sing in Russian, Italian, French, German, you're not getting very far. And what does that look like in terms of accessing that information? Well, lessons, it looks like coachings. It looks like not only do you have a voice lesson, but a lot of times you need to pay for someone to come in and play piano during your voice lesson. You have an audition. Okay. well, there's a flight to the audition and there's a hotel and you might get told no when you get there. So it's uh, it's when I say no one cares, (laughs) I guess uh, it is it is the, the honest truth that that is what's happening. And I think that is why people are caring less and less, because it's it takes much more than people are most people are willing to put into care to even um understand like the value of it requires a lot of niche education that i i can't fault people for not having um if it's not readily available or yeah so um i i will keep fighting for for opera just because i think it really is one of the most Like, I just I can't think of a great word, but it's such an incredible form of of self-expression, like just uh, for human beings in general, like being that near to opera singers and being in an orchestra, having done it myself. Like there is something that is really, I think, next level in terms of their speech, like I said earlier. But I think singing is like an elevated version of that. And it's really incredible I think having worked as a librettist and a singer, trying to and thinking about as an artist, which is my main goal is to communicate an idea. And oftentimes when I'm writing, I'll look at, you know, I'll communicate an idea via text and the same idea as a singer and just look at the impact. And I will say more oftentimes than not, if I communicate a thought through song, the impact is much deeper and i can see it and it's more immediate um versus if i were to to, to write it so i just think about that in, uh, in terms of opera in general general you you have the singer and then you take an or, or a composer that is good that knows how to elevate what the singer is already doing it's really i think an elevated like human experience and i think what needs to be done today is which is what is being done i have friends that are singing um In the role of, uh, I'm sorry, they're singing in the production of, um, it's the Met Opera's production of uh, Anthony Davis' production of uh, Malcolm X. And it was um, originally written in the 70s and he pitched it to them and the opera would not take it, mainly because he was a black composer. And the Met Opera just did um, their first opera by a black man two years ago so almost 50 years later they're now redoing they're now doing uh, uh, Malcolm X so that's just to give you a sense of like what is going on I think we're catching up but that's been why it's not it's I think our generation or just just yeah I think our generation we, we, we want more in terms of diversity we want to see everybody included we want everyone to feel like they have a voice in that space and that's kind of what we're fighting for right now in opera but I'll, I'll keep fighting for it and uh like you said jazz is doing great in my opinion um thanks to singers like samara joy who are bringing a resurgence um yeah they're gosh she's incredible anyway right.
0: so you just got back <coughs> from performances in new york mm. so you're back here in austin what's next for you what's coming up
1: oh yeah um next week i have a concert next week it's at mozart's and it's a series called Jazz at the Grotto, um, a new series I think they're doing. It's over in Westlake, I think off of Lake Austin. Um, I'll be playing uh, for an hour or so. Um, I think there's dinner and, like, uh, dessert and all of that as well. And then I do that on the 25th. And then um, really the the big thing I'm most excited about is November 4th. Um, I'm singing at the Apollo Theater. Um, so... That is what I'm preparing for this month in terms of rehearsal and all of that, all of that jazz, no pun intended.
0: And there's a bit of history behind the Apollo Theater, right? Can you tell me about like why this is such an important performance for you?
1: Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, Ella Fitzgerald got her start there. Sarah Vaughn got her start there. Whitney Houston got her start there. Um, Aretha Franklin more or less got her start there. I would say it's the most important black theater in the country. And it's also one of the most important theaters in the country in general because, you know, without the Apollo Theater, we wouldn't have popular music. We wouldn't have Ella Fitzgerald. She was the first person to win Amateur, Amateur Night at the Apollo. Um, the first person to win was her. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, anywhere that Ella Fitzgerald roamed or sang for me is is an honor to be there and and be included among the lineage but i think for me that's the thing that is so special and makes me emotional there it's very i rarely like look back and get emotional and sentimental about the journey but when i do think about where i was 10 years ago which was here in austin at the performing arts high school dreaming of of performing I didn't even think about the Apollo as being my dream venue. I think at the time it was like I saw my name in lights on over Broadway or something. And I don't know what maybe it was in Shrek the Musical or something. I don't know what I thought I would even be doing, but this for me is especially considering everything I talked about in terms of how I am very intentional with my repertoire, how I'm intentional about talking about the artists that have made this music and how I am very sensitive to, yes, sensitive, I don't know what the word is, but sensitive to things like um, being like, like minstrelsy and having to be subjected to things like that. I think um, being welcomed by this institution has meant the entire world to me. And it's changed my entire, it's changed so much, but just, I think just to be included amongst the legacy of the singers that I have, literally spent hours just trying to understand how I can even get close to emulating what they're doing Um, means everything. It means everything.
0: So as we come to the end of the podcast here, there's a question that I ask everyone who comes on as a tie into the name. And Mm. that question is for you, what does it mean to be Texan? Mm.
1: I love that. What is for me? I, I think I had to explain that to my friend last week. Uh, When I'm visiting New York, um, for me, I'll answer it as what does it mean to be a Texan artist? I find that just growing up in Texas, because life was, I don't want to say small, but I grew up in a a small town and with, with really nice, genuine people where not much really happened. And I think that was on purpose. And I totally get that now being an adult. Like one of my parents were like, yeah, let's let, let's you know, let's let's chill out in Lockhart. You know, um, there was a necessity for me to make my imagination larger than life. And that rarely happens. It. I, actually, it's very funny in this book that I have. <laughs> I picked it up as in the capital. In the Capitol Library, it's called The Natural Superiority of Southern Politicians, and I was just so tickled by the title, (laughs) and I just had to pick it up. But the book, the first chapter, it talks about, like, how, I guess, Southern politicians have a natural superiority, and it talks about, like, a lot of them are from these small towns where you can kind of be incubated in a lot of the the wholesome, all-American ideals without being interrupted by the hustle and bustle of the city and... Because um, I definitely changed when I, I left for the East Coast and my, my thoughts were different and I was focused on different things. But there was a sort of peace um, here, endless peace, where I, I think it needed to be interrupted by um, a great imagination. And I think that's how you get egos as big as Beyonce's down here because um, there's room for it. The, and I think the people make room for it as well. Um, That's the other thing It's. I was so fortunate to have all these big ideas and be lost in my imagination and be encouraged by that here, encouraged by the people in my small town and not thought of as like strange or weird Um, because they get it, too. Um, I I don't think I would have been able to grow up in that kind of way anywhere, anywhere else. Texas is so far (laughs) just geographically, like even if you wanted to get out. You got to really put a lot of effort into it if you are trying to get out. So I think that that does a lot for for me artistically. And I I, that's why I I'll spend half the year in New York and spend the other half here because the way that I think and live here, um, it's with a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of of peace and reflection um, that goes into into life here that I really like I said, I can't find that anywhere else here um, in the country at least. So, yeah.
0: Now, obviously, people can find you at your performances, but where can they find you online?
1: Uh, my website is a great place to start. I have a newsletter that I just started. I keep all my concerts updated there as well. And um, social media, I mean, I'm all right on social media. I, if you care about Instagram, I'm on there. Um, if you care about Twitter, i have be on there, too. That's it. That's it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so very much for your time. Thank really you, appreciate Hannah. it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah